0: Hi, everybody. I'm Yop. I'm the founder and CEO of Remote.
1: Thanks to the magic of technology, the world is increasingly becoming borderless. Today, it really does not matter where you stay. You can work with the best companies in the world from literally any place with a good internet connection. And remote.com is one of the companies at the forefront of this revolution. Using the remote platform, you can hire people from any part of the world and not have to worry about anything else to make that employee productive. All the dirty work of local compliances and payroll processing is managed by remote at the back end. And this is why remote was valued at $3 billion. Stay tuned for a freewheeling conversation between your host Akshay Dutt and Yob word the founder of Remote about how to create value by solving complex problems. So, you trained to be a neuroscientist, right?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I studied neuroscience in university, mm-hmm. worked as a researcher, for a few years. And then when I was about to start my PhD, I discovered the world of startups and I figured I'm going to do that. I want to build a startup and be all
1: cool. <laughs> what, what were you doing as a researcher? So
0: I, I did a few different things. Um, at the end of my master, I, I ended up being very interested in how the brain processes information. And so I worked, I looked specifically for a lab and I worked in a lab that combined computational neuroscience and experimental neuroscience. To try to understand how the brain processes the information. And so in my job, what I did at the time was we would stick electrodes in brains of rats, and then we would play audio to them mm-hmm. to see how the brain processes that audio information. Which is because audio is really easy to control, right? You can okay. create a sine wave. And we have a good understanding of how the first layers of neurons process that information. But we don't really have a good idea of like like the more complex, more abstract representations of information in the brain. And so that is what I was researching. Um, The thing with science is it's all very slow. If you have a company and you do well, you can hire a lot of people to make, you know, do the little tasks for you. But if you're working in science, even if you're, you know, a big famous scientist, you end up having to do a lot of the work yourself because, you know, you're doing something new, so it doesn't exist. So you spend a lot of your time doing you know, in my case, we had this electrophysiology, which is what you call the whole measuring, you know, electrical signals from the brain. We spent a lot of time, for example, removing noise from that system. So I remember vividly that we had these ultrasonic cleaners to clean the equipment where we would use for mice and rats. And like that was causing interference in our experiments. And so we had to work to remove that. We had, you know, we struggled with, which everybody does, which is like the 50, 60 Hertz from power lines to to remove that and and so you spend a lot of time doing fiddly things and you know in our case walking around with large rolls of aluminum foil to try to shield everything of your setup Um, but i really liked it i thought it was really interesting but i don't really like the career of a scientist it's very restricted even if you're very successful there's a lot of luck that plays into it it's very hard to control your own fate very little freedom because you have to, if you want to be really great, you have to move from lab to lab, from country to country. And then you end up writing grants for a large part of your career. And I I was not too interested in that.
1: Okay. So what uh, specifically interested you in the world of startups? Like, Did you have an idea or did you get recruited to build an idea? I thought it was exciting. One,
0: I wanted to be my own boss. And I am someone who's has a lot of interests and it very easily becomes uh, enamored with something and so it was more about the way that I wanted to live my life and ambitions that I had for myself that met my interest in technology and, and computers as a whole and that drove me to leave science and the first thing I did actually was I tried to start a startup and the startup was actually very similar to what I do today which is we try to build a network to match people with jobs um, and so oh, interesting just okay. uh, and and we tried to use machine learning which was really early at that time uh, which year was this this was 2011 2012 okay. and uh, and I did this together with my current co-founder with Marcelo and uh, <laughs> so it was really early and I didn't have any money because I didn't earn any money in science so um, we tried for a number of months. I was living in Portugal, where at the time I was not as familiar and spoke the language as well. And the startup scene there was non existent. Uh, and that was really a combination to quickly fail, which I did. And then I had to find
1: a job. <laughs> so that was my first attempt. Okay. okay. What were you do? Were you the one who was coding and you know, all? Or like, what were you doing in there?
0: No, for the first one, I wasn't. Uh, I, in science, I would do a lot of programming. When I was building that startup, I worked with Marcelo and two other guys who did most of the programming. But again, after a few months, you know, we re- I ran out of money, so I had to find a job. And because I had taught myself to program, I actually worked as a programmer for, for about a year. So. Okay,
1: okay, okay. And like that that one year was with GitLab, or that was before GitLab? No, no,
0: that it was, it was, it was before GitLab. I worked for a company called Digidentity, which um, works on... Um, identification system of the Netherlands. And so I was working as a Ruby on Rails programmer there, which I really liked. It was a, it was a nice job. I I loved the program. And there I met Sid, the CEO and co-founder of, of GitLab. And so one day he left because he was working there as a consultant, you know, to make money because GitLab was not making money. And one day he left, he says, I'm just gonna work on GitLab. He was like Yup, if you ever want to do something else, let me know. So a few months later, I ended up joining GitLab. And there I stayed for five years.
1: And what was GitLab building? Why did you get so fascinated to spend five years there? For those
0: that don't know, GitLab is a competitor to GitHub. It's a, it started out as an open source project, and uh, specifically an open source competitor al- alternative to GitHub. And back then, this was just source code, right? Source code repository. You could put your Git repositories there, and that was it. And uh, it already existed before GitLab the company. So GitLab the open source project started in 2011 and uh, GitLab the company only started to work in 2013 or so. And uh, so we were using it in in my prior job. So we're using GitLab, so I was very familiar with it. So that was very exciting. I liked it and I liked the potential to work on it. And we were a really, really small team. And so I joined a service engineer, which meant I did everything, support, engineering, design, product management, and eventually, I, uh, I named myself a product manager, and then I ended up leading product until
1: I left. For people who don't understand uh, what is a code repository, uh, like what GitHub, uh, GitHub were, well, just give us a 101. And GitHub also started open source, right? Until-
0: GitHub is not open source. It was never okay. in
1: this. It was open. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. just give us a one-on-one. What what this product is. What does it yeah. do? How does it monetize?
0: Yeah. So if you, so what it does, it, is, it allows you to work together on software. So when you're making software, you write code. Code is just text. And the problem is, is that, like when you work in a Google Doc together, everybody can make changes at the same time. And when you're working on text, that's just text that doesn't matter. But when you're working on software, that, that matters a lot. Because if somebody makes a change somewhere else in the code that you're working on, it might break your code, right? Because it gets executed. It runs itself. And so what so far, like GitLab and GitHub do, which are all underpinned by Git, right? This is where the name comes from. Um, They make it possible to actually collaborate effectively with other people. And they do that by branching off. So that means that multiple people can work on multiple pieces of code and later bring them together. And then GitLab makes sure that you test the code and and that, that merging of the things together that actually works successfully. And so it is fundamental. Did you use Git or an alternative to Git to actually write software? A hundred percent of all programmers used it for working together with other software programmers.
1: Yeah. And so what does the I word Git mean here?
0: Yeah. I mean Git is a joke. So the creator of, of Git, who oh, is very famous because he was also he was also the one that created Linux. He um he thought it was funny. Because Git in English means like a silly person, right? Right. Uh, So he thought it was funny. And so the way GitLab works and its business model is what it's commercial open source software or open core software. Which means that there's an open source version that everybody can see and use freely. You can see how it's written. they can see all the source code. And then what we did is we created an enterprise version that was not open source. So you can't just use it for free. You have to pay for that. And so the difference between these two versions are additional features. For example, if you're a large enterprise and you need a certain security feature, we would make that and we put that in enterprise edition. And so our customers would come to us. They were probably already using GitLab and the open source version. And then they would say, oh, we would like a security feature. And then we say, that's great. You got to pay this much for it. And then you get to use enterprise version and get some support. And that works. that works really well. It's a really nice model because you get the best of both worlds. You get a lot of adoption. Because of open source, you get people contributing to it because open source also means that people can contribute to your software and you still get to make money through an, a proprietary version, right? So you get the best of both worlds, uh, albeit it is challenging to manage those two worlds, but nonetheless, it, it, it works out really well. And GitLab today is a public company, so
1: it did really well. I guess the, uh, what today is called product growth, this would have been like a precursor to
0: I, I don't know. I, think, I mean, product-led growth is one of those things where um, you, it, you talk a lot about, like, what is your funnel? How does your funnel of prospects and leads get generated? And in mean, product-led growth, for your sense, is, you're saying it's like, well, you know, product puts the forefront so rather than sales or marketing. But GitLab, uh, to degree, had that, although it's more because it's open source, not because we were tuning the pipeline. And in fact, I think our pipeline wasn't very good for a really long time. It was really hard to do it we just gave something away for free and then we created another product which had additional features so i don't know if you would call it i think it's just commercial open source software which i think is um a good term for these kind of things that that, that is almost its own model and then product like growth was something that we more like uh, pushed into our cloud version because what eventually we did is we created a version that runs on the cloud so you don't have to host it yourself and there we pushed really hard for adoption, you know, self-serve adoption. And that was more product-led growth. But um, yeah, it really is like open source software and commercial open source that has like a public version and a private version or a cloud version, self-hosted version. I think that is its own model. And it's it's hard to um, compare it to product-led
1: growth directly. Got it, got it. How did you fix the funnel? You said for a long time the funnel was ready. The thing about GitLab was is that
0: it was an open source project that was self-hosted. So to me, you would take the software, you would install it on your own server. It's very hard to track that usage because the moment you put code into that that says, "Oh, let me track the usage of your of this open source software," one, not everybody might run that update, and two, people will just like not be happy with that, and then they will take it out, or they will just simply not use that, the software anymore. And so we knew there were we had a suspicion. And we had some tricks, but like we didn't know exactly how much usage there was of GitLab. And so over time, we had to find ways to like identify places where GitLab was running and also make, our, make it clear to everybody using GitLab, hey, yeah, there's now a paid version of this. Right. And so that was a gradual thing. There was no magical thing. And it's really not the same thing as like you have a SaaS website and you can like measure where drop off is because for us, it was like, well, for one, we didn't know what top of the funnel meant. Like how many companies were there? We were we we guessed that there were like a hundred thousand uh, hosted versions of GitLab when we got started with the business. Could have been half of that. Could have been ten x that. And and we still didn't know. And like many years later, we would still encounter companies that had r- massive GitLab installations running, but on a version of like five years ago. And so we would find those companies. They like their whole company was running on GitLab, but it was like an old version. And then they made added all sorts of crazy stuff to it. Um, and yeah, so that was that was very interesting. And in fact, at one point I visited this large Chinese um, software and hardware manufacturer and they did exactly that. They had this massive installation of GitLab, probably the biggest in the world, but they also had completely customized it. There was nothing, you couldn't recognize it anymore as normal GitLab. They had a whole um, sort of gaming mechanism to this with rewards and points and there was no way that we were able to like actually, actually help anymore. And, but over time, what we did is we created things like services that made it attractive to actually check in with us. For example, we added a tool and this is, if you build an open source, um, if you build open source software, this is a really good trick, which is you add a versioning tool to it. So you add a um, somewhere in your product, something that calls out to one of your servers that then says, uh, you know, what is the latest version? And that gave us a sense of, well, how many installations are running out there with at least this version, and how many, and which current version do they have? Because you can send along that information, and that would give us some some more information about uh, how, 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 what usage was around the world. But we were always really cautious because we didn't want to burn any bridges, and I didn't want to add like actual deep tracking in it because the open source community would just reject that, and then you know create an, an alternative to to GitLab. Which ended up happening, but they never really took off
1: because they, they were not. Fascinating. What were like your top learnings as a product manager here at GitLab, which would have helped you when such started remote?
0: I think the most important one is it's a cliche, which is to just talk to your customers <laughs> and talk to your users. Um, but I think one in particular that I feel very strongly about uh, is that GitLab had many large enterprises as customers and still has. And also many smaller companies and individual developers, and that is that any large company is still made up of individuals when you, talk, when you read about you know traditional product management and product management of tools that serve the enterprise and such, one they all those kind of tools they have this like negative connotation of like being you know enterprisey which nobody likes and, and for good reason um, and two, it, you know you read all these things about like how to make your product enterprise. You know, ready and centered and such. And there's some truth to it. But for the most part, what I found was that the same kind of people that work in small companies or that are individuals using your product, there's a lot of those working in enterprises. And so the things that benefit individuals, the things that you think like, oh, those are important for uh, companies targeting earlier stage uh, organizations. They still remain true for larger organizations. For example, you know, delighting your users, or creating things that are really easy to use, or that automate a lot. Um, opinionated products, right? What you so? For example, we avoided for a really long time at GitLab for a really, really long time. Too much customization, right? What do we wanted, we wanted to give you a lot of power out of the box, rather than saying, "Oh, you know, everything has to be and, and, and it can be." customized and because we were so opinionated a lot of our enterprise customers were like oh we want to customize everything which you know is is but we resisted that and because we resisted it we actually had a lot of um, cross usage because gitlab went from being one product to being many products in a single platform and to encourage users of all the other things we made the adoption the, the barrier to adoption as low as possible and like we made it as low as possible by making sure it was opinionated so that you didn't have to do anything. It would just work. You know, rather than saying, oh, you want to set up this new tool? We were like, here's a new tool. It works. You don't have to do anything. It works. It might not work exactly the way you want it to. You might have an, an alternative tool that you have now running inside of your company, but we're going to give this to you. You don't have to use it if you don't want to, but if just, it's, it's done, it's ready, and it's working. And we did that, and it was extremely successful as a strategy. And, uh, and, it, and it meant that we had... I still remember this, which is a large, large financial institution like a bank. And they, uh, they said, okay, we chose GitLab for this part of our software suite, and we chose another tool for another part of our software suite. And we were like, yeah, but we can do both. And they were like, no, 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 no. we only choose best of breed, and we need these very specific things. We're like, okay, whatever. And so they installed GitLab, and we gave the other part for free. I mean, in fact, I made it so that you couldn't turn it off. They didn't have to use it, but you could just couldn't turn it off. And so what happened is that, of course, they started to use GitLab for both those things and ended up cancelling the contract with the other business. And that was a really, really good strategy that we used early on. And I I think that is one that um, I continue to think about a lot and try to do with promoters.
1: That's an interesting phrase of building an opinionated product. I'm hearing it for the first time. Uh, How do you become an opinionated product manager? (laughs) I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think... You know, I, I think it's important to have uh, an opinion. And like, and, uh, how do you form an opinion? I don't know. I guess being exposed to a lot of things, being inherently interested, seeing a lot of different viewpoints. And then from that, distill is something that you have an opinion about. I think that's the most important thing. I, it goes back to talking to your customers, right? Like there were many assumptions and thoughts that I had about how to build certain kind of products that uh, then customers would tell me, well, that's not at all how you think about it. But there were also some things where I felt very strongly about something. Our customers would tell us the opposite. But because I felt strongly about it, we're, we ended up doing my way anyway, and it would work out, right? So I don't know, I, you know, first principle thinking is always really helpful. And it is in these cases as well, right? I think it's always valid to ask not just uh, how do you want something, but also just ask to yourself, like, why is it that we do this thing in this way? Like, why is this the expectation? And in general, I think striving for simplicity and taking away work is almost always a really effective way to build products, right? In the end, what do you want products to do is that you want them to make your life easier to solve problems and not create new ones or new things that you have to think about or worry about, you know. So I I think that's it. Other than that, I don't know. I want to know. How do you become opinionated? I guess exposing yourself to a lot of things. I
1: guess Steve Jobs was probably the original opinionated product manager, right? But well, I mean that's what you would call Apple products, right? Like they are, yeah, absolutely. Know. I mean, to me, Apple is the great
0: example of a company that does product management extremely well. And um, I, but I, I think there were many before that, and I think there are many since that. I think most great products, right, that have universal acclaim, are quite opinionated about how they do things, and they're. You know, rather than just giving you all the options and letting you
1: feel fascinating. So, uh, how did uh, remote get started? How did the idea come to you? Tell me about the the birth of remote.
0: So, GitLab was working as a fully distributed and remote
1: organization since day
0: one, and what was really obvious that this was the way companies were going to be built in the future because we essentially only had upsides, no real downsides. But it, it, ve- it, was, it, it was counterintuitive. We don't have an office. We don't see each other very often. We do, you avoid meetings. Um, but nonetheless, it was, and, and because it was counterintuitive, because, but I lived it for many years, I knew that this is, this was a true thing. This was not an opinion. This was, it's just fact. This works well. But the one thing we struggled with was the part that the remote solves today, which is, I have a large team that is distributed. I need to be able to pay everybody. I need to be able to stay compliant. And how, how do I do that? And at GitLab, we tried all the things. We tried setting up our own entities and running all, everything in the house. We tried working with external providers and any, any, any other solution we could potentially find to make it easy to hire people from all over the planet. And they were all valid solutions, but they were all expensive and painful without exception. There was nothing easy. There was no magic solution to the problem of I have a distributed team and I need to make sure everybody gets paid on time and also make sure that I'm compliant. It's a serious, large business. And so believing that the future was obviously going to be remote, wanting to always have started my own business. Actually, when I joined GitLab, I, I said to Sid, and we agreed that I was gonna stay for one year and then I was gonna start my own business, well, thirteen to five. And I, I figured, well, now's the time to do something about this and so Marcelo who is my best friend and we already built many other you know while I was working at GitLab I built all sorts of apps and products with him uh, as practice runs so to say we were like okay let's do this
1: Uh, and so we started something like this sounds uh like it would need both time and money to (laughs) build an MVP I mean you can't have uh, an MVP here which is just working for let's say one country probably need to cover maybe like 15, 20 countries in your MVP. So tell me how you, did you raise funds from day zero or like, how did you go about this?
0: Yeah, we we had a little bit of cash, but not not a lot. And so early on, we were like, okay, we we acquired a domain remote.com and we had the decision. We can either start like a job board and try to build a lifestyle business, or we could do this big idea that we ended up doing. And we knew that if we did this big idea, exactly as you say, we needed to raise a lot of money and we needed to go all the way. We're like, okay, we live only once. We should do the really crazy, ambitious thing. And so when we made that decision, we raised money. And so we raised two rounds in total, like 15 million or so, before we made any
1: money. And then... uh, These were like three product rounds when you didn't even have a working prototype to show.
0: Yeah, we had nothing to show. And in fact, yeah. I also just like my pitches, my, I barely made a deck. It was just me talking to investors. Mm-hmm. But I was mm-hmm. committed. like, I knew exactly what we had to do. I knew that this was a real problem. I got lucky, I suppose, with the, with the investors. Um, but yeah, we knew it was really, really hard. I think one of the things that we decided early on was that we wanted to take a different approach than other companies in the space had taken and were taken which is um they were relying on external infrastructure and external parties to run their services and my belief was always that the only way to build a great product is if you own as much if not all of what underlies it so the hardware legal infrastructure in our case and so we never we said early on we'd never want to take any shortcuts. And it probably hurt us in terms of growth, but it, it benefited us in terms of building a better product for our customers, which I think long term is the is a better decision. And so that's it. And then we just worked. We worked for we started in January 2019. And we worked for a year and a half before we were able to open the first four countries and a few more after that. And by then we immediately onboarded customers.
1: That was, um... I guess your timing was amazing. But, but before that, a little bit more on the fundraise. Uh, how many no's did you hear before you heard a yes? And like, was it challenging to, that fundraise? Or your, uh, you had built a certain amount of credibility at GitLab, which kind of helped you?
0: One, I had built a certain amount of credibility, which was really helpful. And so the first, the first ever investor meeting I had, those investors are still investors.
1: Oh, um, amazing.
0: And I didn't, I didn't, I I don't know how many no's I faced, but I I do know I met with a lot of investors every single round that we did. So most of them would say no. And many of them I would say no to, but I that I'm really not married to that. I'm somebody who's really focused on what's next and I don't linger on rejection. So I'm, yeah, we got countless rejection, but I don't really think about it. (laughs) I, I really focus on like, how do I get to what I need to get to? And so we were really su- we were successful in doing what we wanted to do, actually more so. I think I, I I planned on raising less than in the end, I did, and we end up you know over the past years raising like five hundred million dollars, which i I never anticipated to uh, why
1: did you say no to investors?
0: Well, you know if you have the luxury of choice, which we had not all rounds, but some of the rounds we had the luxury of choice, you have to make a decision right so you you end up saying no to the bunch for various reasons i. You know, when you work with investors, you should always back channel, right? You should call other founders that they invested in, the ones that they don't refer, and ask, "Well, how is it working with this investor? Would you would you work with this investor?" And then that's a pretty good one. Another one is just simple term sheet, right? You get a term sheet, you get for three, you know, there's there's two good ones, and then you know you end up having to reject one, uh, two. That's
1: right. Okay. Got it.
0: And these are mostly European investors? No, we have like
1: one European investor, the rest okay. is all there. Oh, well. And so, when you were building remote, DEAL was already there? I guess DEAL would be your primary large global competitor. Yeah, to some
0: degree. I think they they are more early in the market. We have some other competitors more up market. Um, They started a little bit earlier than us. They were making money when we were you know barely starting the company there there are quite a lot of companies in the market and as i said i think one of the things that we realized early on is that we don't want to take a similar approach because we don't think that results in a good product
1: so what did you do that year and a half when you were trying to build your mvp do whatever it was necessary
0: to build a company um I, I, you know one thing was building the product making it possible to actually run payroll everywhere because we didn't want to work with third parties we had to do everything we had to figure out how to do everything related to setting up payroll registering people locally staying compliant all the contracts everything else that came with it and setting up the entities so I was flying around the world signing contracts because pre covid you had to just be everywhere in person there was no excuse to not be in a country so we're going to open a business there so Every time we had to open an entity, every time we had to open a bank account, I had to fly to that location, sign something, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: I guess the last part of of your work would have been to ingest country specific knowledge of how to employ, how to run payroll, and kind of productify it. Uh, like that's what you would have been doing.
0: Yeah. And finding people, like (laughs) finding people who can help you with that. That's very difficult because, you know, you want people that are both agile and can work at like startup speed, but you also want to make sure that these people actually know
1: their shit. (laughs) You hired somebody for each country or like you worked with consultants? How did you adjust the knowledge? Yeah,
0: it varied a bit by country. For some country, we had people there and it helped a lot. But for every country, we always had like a local legal team. That could help us because even if you have one person in the country which we didn't want to do by on principle, but even if we were to have that there are always cases that you haven't accounted for right because you can be faced with legal issues you can be faced with tax issues you can be faced with immigration issues and for each country you can easily be an expert in any one of those subjects but hardly be an expert in all of them and so we always have local teams to, to help us. And still to, the, to this day, right? We are active in so many countries right now. Um, we have a large enough team to theoretically have one person per country, but uh, in practice, we don't. Like, really we have
1: local legal teams that can, can help. Okay, got it. So the, the product is essentially like a rule-based workflow engine where you have to build rules for each country Uh, Sort
0: of, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely part of it. I think it's pretty complex. And what I think it is, it's a really um, compliance-centered HR platform today. And so there's everything you would expect from any HR platform. You take in all data from individuals, you can manage them, you can register PTO expenses, anything else you would really expect from a platform like that. And then we build in a lot of those rules. And um, they're quite elaborate. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of it and there's a lot of subtleties to it. And we have to continuously maintain them because of how many countries. are.
1: Mm. Oh, got it. Uh, tell me more you go to market. So by the time you were ready to go live, uh, the lockdowns had already started.
0: Yeah, um, we went live in May 2020. So yeah, lockdowns were live for for two months. And the way we got our first, I don't know how many customers, was I, on day one of building a remote, I was already calling with prospects because I wanted to know, what should I build? What are the problems you face? And I did that until we went live. And so there were so many com- companies that I spoke to that were informed of the progress we were making. Like There were companies that I spoke to in week two and in week 20 and in week 60. And by week 60, I could tell them, oh, look, we're going to go live in, you know, at the time, France, Portugal, the Netherlands and the UK. I think those were the first four countries. And then one of them was like, yeah, we." I was surprised that they would. But like, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll try with you. And so that's how we got most of our early uh, companies. And then, of course, we raced another round, which we used for PR and press and marketing. We started to build our marketing team. And because everybody went remote, we had the domain name remote.com. And demand for these kind of products increased. And because we were really aggressive with our pricing, which at the time was, you know, really was a real strong differentiator in the market, we were able to gather a lot of uh, inbound. And so we didn't really have to do anything outbound for a really long time. And we just kept growing and growing and growing.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Uh, how does uh, it get priced? Is it like a per employee, per month? Before? Yep.
0: Yeah, it's just a flat fee per employee per month. Is yeah, it tracing. a percentage of salary or is it
1: like a fixed no,
0: dollar? No, no, it's just a flat flat fee. We don't charge any other fee. So with all our competitors, no exceptions, there are onboarding fees, offboarding fees, fees for pay slips, fees for that, a lot of hidden costs, costs that they don't tell you about, costs to break a contract, costs if something happens. We don't charge any of those. So the thing is, is that we have a price that we list on our website. Maybe if your startup get a little discount over that. But well, then there's nothing else that you pay other than the salary of your employee. And so we don't charge any additional fees. Sometimes we hear it as like, oh, you know, remote charges all these fake fees. But we really don't. I wish we did. We would make a lot more money, but we really don't. Um, and then we can do that because we own the entire infrastructure. And over the years, initially we weren't, but now we're really, really efficient. And so we actually don't have to take that much. And so we don't charge a percentage. I also don't want to charge a percentage because I think it is... It, it discourages um, giving people races, right? Which I think is unethical. I think I wanna create a world where opportunity is actually equally accessible independent of where you are and you're not punished because you live far away. And so we can't do that if we are discouraging giving people a race, because with each race your fee to remote goes up as well. And I don't think that makes sense.
1: Okay. What's the 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 range terms of the forty charge per person? Oh, it's
0: five ninety nine a month. Five hundred nine across about. the world. Across the world, yeah, same everywhere.
1: Amazing. Okay, really simplifies the decision making.
0: It's really simple, yeah. I think you know if you look at how others are doing, like our competition, all charges hefty fees on transactions, on payments, FX fees, and a bunch of other things, and because we. We don't charge any additional fees. Um, so it's still a lot of money, $599, but it's really cheap for employer of record services. And then our contractor product is essentially free, like $19 employee per contractor per month.
1: What's the, the, the difference between the contractor product and the employer of record product?
0: So it's just the, the model of employment. right? If you are an employee, you actually get full local employment. So you get an employment agreement and all the protections and additions that you get and that you have right to. You're an actual employee employed through remote. So in India, you're employed to our Indian entity, you get local benefits, you get full local protection, like any other employee. There's no real difference. And in fact, usually we tend to be a very good employer because we get a lot of um, discounts because of our scale on benefits, for example. So you get great benefits as well. If you're a contractor, you're a contractor. So you invoice your uh the company you work for and then what you can do with remote is process those payments as an employer you can process all of those payments
1: through us okay so the the contractor business is somewhat like a fintech business in a way then that's it is about.
0: yeah i mean we process billions of dollars in payroll both wow. employer records and contractor. so
1: okay.
0: in a lot of ways you could say that we are an hr company in a lot of ways you could say that we are fintech. a fintech uh, and I, I mean, you can call it whatever you want. I don't really mind. I, I think by the time we
1: go public as a company, then maybe I'll care. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So it, it, you would uh, provide the benefits and charge okay. the employer for this, right? Like, say, health insurance or whatever other benefits. Are there. No, we have those to. So we have through.
0: to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all, we pass through all costs, right? So if you want to employ Jane, Jane lives in Germany. And then you go to us and we tell you, okay, you know, five ninety nine a month, and then whatever seller you want to give Jane, and then the benefits that you have to offer Jane and there's some optional ones, you choose them, and then we pass all those costs on a monthly basis through to you. And then we add the five ninety nine on top. And if you pay all of that,
1: nothing more to do. Okay. Tell me about your journey of finding the right customer and you know, Briefly spoken about that video I saw yours when you spoke of that journey between startups and enterprise and mid level businesses, finding the right customer and so well, I'd love to hear that. Yeah.
0: I think for us, you know, it's an it's not a very standard common path that we took. Because the demand was so clearly there. We also were able to identify the demand by, as I told you, like early on, talking to as many businesses as possible. And there were a few things that we learned. One was that, you know, if you start early on, smaller businesses or startups, they are much more happy to take on risk, a risk of a new player, right? And 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 then they do that, and they get a discount. They get something that's cheaper, potentially better or better customer service, but they're much more willing to take on risk. Larger businesses are much harder to work with a priori because they have a really long vendor process. They are very risk avoidant. They tend to default to whomever is biggest and most well known or a public company in the space. And so that drives naturally your business to probably serve smaller companies or startups early on. And it mostly was true for us as well. That said, we, we sell an expensive product. We sell a product that You know, if you don't care about being compliant, you don't worry about local laws, you might just hire everybody as a contractor. And so maybe you don't want to use EOR. And so for us, we sort of fell in the middle, right? Where super early startups, they don't really care for us, but really large enterprises we didn't really want to work with yet initially. And so the middle range of companies really worked for us from 20 to 200 employees or so. That said, GitLab was one of the first customers and they had more than 200 employees at the time. But beyond that, I think the one interesting thing for us is that there's this uh, the way we build remote is we build this around the idea that all operations are centered around an individual. So if you onboard Jane with us, the process she goes through, so that we make sure that you're compliant, that she's compliant, that she's onboard, is the same as if, if Apple comes to us and says, oh, we want to onboard these thousand people. Every one of those thousand people are treated the same in our system. And so that meant that, and still to this day, that we can onboard companies of almost any size and we're pretty good at it. And so we certainly started out with many smaller companies and found our way in that sense. Today, it's companies of almost any size, uh, which is counterintuitive and counter like the traditional narrative of, you have to be really specific about which market segment you're in, where We're really happy to help small startups. We're really happy to help large enterprises, which ties into my belief that, you know, large enterprises is full of people that also care about the little details.
1: How did uh, the the product evolve in response to you understanding what customer segment works for you, what each customer segment wants, and so on?
0: Very little, I have to admit, because for the most part, up until recently, we were just trying to make it work. (laughs) It's just like, we have this large demand and we're doing this really complex thing and we want to add more and more countries so our product becomes more interesting. And so we just have to do whatever is necessary to make it work. And so it was not so much, oh, searching for things to do and, and deciding whether certain customers want a certain thing. It was much more, we just have to work really hard to make it work so it doesn't all fall apart or break. And, and, and again, like you have to talk to customers all the time. And we did. And of course, we incorporate their feedback. But for the most part, it was doing the obvious thing which is okay we have contract amendments in this country that are taking a lot of time to process can we somehow solve that and then imagine that times 100 every day for
1: years right so your your bigger challenge is essentially operationally uh, figuring out how to solve those challenges country by country rather than uh, Building good UI UX and so on and so forth, like those would be secondary challenges.
0: Um, I mean, it's the same challenge mm. because you can only do a really good job of making it easy to hire someone in a certain country by having great UI UX. For example, adding some text somewhere in the interface, you know, dropped an entire you know line of support essentially from us, where you know wow. we had. All sorts of questions about certain subjects and then we were like okay if we just explain it more clearly in the interface then if we're not going to get those questions anymore and we face those kind of things daily i think today less than less than ever before is it an operational challenge because we sort of figured it out right so we we know now how to do it and we are efficient and we are fast we can onboard faster than anybody else we move faster than anybody else and so We don't really seek that operational challenge anymore. We sort of solved it. Now we're building new stuff.
1: New stuff like what? What's on the roadmap?
0: I think for us as a business, you know, we built EOR. Then we built the contractor's business. And now we're seeing, well, we are really good at running payroll. So we want to run payroll anywhere for any kind of business. So that's one of the things that we're really focused on. You know, a few cool things coming.
1: Yeah, okay. Payroll is a fairly competitive market, right? Like uh, a very low pricing, or at least I'm talking of the Indian context. I mean, in India, we have a lot of payroll vendors. pricing is dirt cheap. Uh, is it worth getting into that payroll processing market?
0: It's worth it in the sense that the market is really big. Every company runs payroll. And, you know, we specifically offer global payroll for companies that have run payroll in multiple countries. And that is a very different market. It's not very well served. The products are really low quality. I think anything our competitors have brought out has been extremely low quality. And so we have a belief we can do significantly. So that's what we're
1: yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Interesting. Tell me about uh, building remote as an organization. Uh, like, who were the first people you hired and why? And, you know, how How did you scale it up? What is the head count today?
0: So today we are far over a thousand internally. And we started out, the first four hires were all engineers. We roughly knew who we wanted to hire. And then we hired someone for operations, someone for design, and then another design. I think that's sort of the order. And so... You know, the first year, it was just nine of us, I think, in total. And in the second year, we went from nine to 50. So we launched our product halfway through the year, and we went to 50. And then at that point, we started hiring a lot more people for operations and support. And then the third year, we went from 50 to 650, wow. where we hired everything, every role you could imagine. You basically had to, you know all hands on deck, try to just get any soul that could help us out as quickly as possible because we were growing so fast. And then we started to, you know, I mean, slightly slow down until today um, because we figured out ways to be more efficient. And we try to keep the team as small as possible, which sounds ridiculous when you're over a thousand. We work really hard to try to keep the team as small as possible. And in particular, we want to be really efficient. So I want people to spend most of their time doing hard things that require creativity, rather than operationally boring things. And so uh, that that has been an ongoing, ongoing challenge, a, a fun challenge.
1: Like, what are some of the frameworks that you use for art building? Like, you know, from fifty to six fifty. Uh, how did you right? that was. It- particular approach you used uh, because you obviously cannot personally uh, keep an eye on quality of talent and so on and so forth uh, so help me understand your work building framework
0: so there, there are a number of things the first one was that we very early on created the handbook it's available to remote.com handbook where we wrote down what our values were And those values inform the kind of people that we want to hire, the kind of culture we want to build and how we expect to communicate with each other, which is a whole chapter on how to communicate. That was the most important thing. That's like, that was the foundation of how we wanted to build an organization. And then we set certain standard rules. One, which was that, you know, every individual should have a manager and a manager should have a span of control of maybe, you know, five to eight reports. And they should do regular one-on-ones and they should manage performance. And if you start like that, it is doable, right? Because you have like the foundational elements. And then to make sure is well-onboarded, we make sure we have great onboarding materials. You know, We were already working asynchronously, so we had a lot of documentation that people could self-serve. Those were the most important things. And beyond that, it was just like, what do we need? Let's make a pragmatic plan on how do we get there? How big is that team going to be? And then, yeah, in that year that we grew so fast, we just continuously revised based on what we believe we could do next. we were really aggressive.
1: Uh, what are some of the ways, I mean, you know, a lot of tech companies are now uh, in that return to office modes. Uh, as you started pure remote and you intend to continue to be pure remote, uh, what makes you more, working successful for some companies and not for others? I think if you start
0: out as an office-based company, it's much more hard, much harder. I think the most important thing is full commitment from everybody to work remotely, and I think everybody has to work remotely all the time. You can work from an office, but you have to act as if it's remote.
1: So you're do you do that. hybrid doesn't work?
0: A hybrid doesn't work because... The people that are remote or the time that you are remote, you're not facing or addressing the problems or challenges that come with remote working. Rather, you're just waiting to be back in the office. And if you have teams that are partially remote, right, some in your office, always some remote, then you get isolation and not good collaboration. And nobody likes that. And so one, everybody has to be remote. And two, you have to build a really strong culture around communication and proactive communication and transparency. And if you do that, you'll be fine right because then the time that you do spend in meetings you can spend more time bonding with each other you can prioritize um, what you believe is necessary for your teams to grow whether it's you know more time together or meeting in person um but above all it's it's about you know facing the challenges that come with remote work and focusing on actual output rather than how long how many hours somebody is working and you get that by transparency and just a clear Manager lines, one-on-ones with managers, clear expect- setting expectations, essentially running a good business. I think that's all that's required. I I also think that it, it matters a lot about how what kind of management you have, right? Like it's ultimately management that decides to send you back to the office, and it's probably management that's either, you know, super comfortable, like deciding how good people are by how loud they are or how present they are in the office, rather than the actual output that they deliver. Um, or maybe they feel like a sense of control, or they feel pressure from shareholders to show more productivity and, and by bringing people in the office you know maybe that gives a sense of doing that uh, but i i i think in many cases if you're not actually building hardware you should if you're just building so far you should be able to do it from whenever from where
1: so you're saying yep. the fundamental mindset change has to happen from input to output like instead of yeah. measuring input like how many hours you're putting in to measure output like what is the whatever unit can best define the output for each role you need to invest time in setting that up being able to uh, look at that across the organization and use that as the measure of uh, rewards and recognition and so on yeah that's it okay okay interesting Tell me a bit about your revenues. I mean, so, uh, you know, when you lost, what kind of MRR or ARR were you doing? What, what kind of ARR are you doing now?
0: We do billions of dollars in payroll, and we can easily pay the salaries of 11 or 1,200 people.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. You uh, raised two more rounds after uh, Series A, which you did in 2020. Uh, both were fairly big, 150 and then 110 million uh, Tell me a bit about that, tell me. The
0: uh... company was growing really, really fast. And so we didn't need the capital, but we were um, opportunistic, right? We knew that the market was really hot when we raised our Series B. And so we made use of that. And we got a great investor in Excel. And then we saw the market declining a little bit and we figured, you know, we probably need to raise once more before, before we IPO. And, um, and so we did, <laughs> we did last year in March, $300 million. Uh, And yeah, I, I don't think we'll, we'll have to ever race around.
1: This, SoftBank was the lead investor for the 300 million. Yeah. Okay. And like, what do you need funds for? Is it for customer acquisition or is it for opening up new countries or?
0: All of the above, right? I, I always think like if you, especially later rounds, you're not going to say, oh, we're raising funds because X. No, you raise funds because you want to grow, mm. right? And like, all right, my, the expectation of my investors is not that I use every dollar for a specific purpose. No, my expectation is that I allocate capital so that the company grows. And that's what we we did, and that's what we're doing, and so we'll
1: continue to. But how much effort is for new initiatives? How much effort is for growing the EOR business? It Does depends. the EOR business still need money? Is it still a cash burn business?
0: We're In general, we're not burning any cash. No.
1: So, you like. We, we, can, we can comfortably. Um,
0: you know, so, the margins on EOR are really, really high. And so, we can comfortably spend most of the money on new initiatives. That said, we're not
1: really burning any cash. So, we're in a pretty good position. Including your customer acquisition costs, you're not burning any money in the EOR business. Amazing. Okay. So essentially, you're now looking to invest in new product line. What we did
0: and we continue to do. is just we always want to grow the business, right? And you continuously make the choice, like, how are we going to spend money? Are we going to put it in something new? Are we going to do something existing? I think EOR is really complicated, right? It entails a lot of things. And part of it is, for example, opening new countries. You could easily consider well, opening a new country is like a whole new business line. Whereas in reality, I don't know. I don't know what is true, but we continue to do what we've always done, which is to work on the things that we believe are best for our business and ultimately best for the planet. <laughs> I think those go hand in hand really with it. and I, I think I do I, I would say if you want to, you know, quantify it, I think that the largest part of the investments that we make today or the, the, the money that we spend goes into new initiatives.
1: What what do you see in terms of uh, broad trends? Are a lot of uh, companies in the West hiring people from, say, like India or other countries? And is that like a big part of your your basket? Or, you know, some broad trends that you work. The
0: the market that we serve is essentially companies hiring people internationally, and that market is only growing. And that includes companies from anywhere hiring Hiring people anywhere. And there's a really strong correlation to size of a country and how many people get hired there. So you can imagine India being one of our largest markets, one of the places where most people are hired. But we also see a lot of Indian companies, for example, hiring across the world. And so, yeah, India is one of our biggest markets easily. Okay,
1: okay, fascinating. Um, So, you know, my last question to you What's your advice to young aspiring founders? start
0: and do whatever <laughs> the hell is necessary that's it i think stop reading listening to people telling you what to do just start i think the best way to learn something is just to fail endlessly Marcelo, my co-friend and i we built tens of different things we had a million different ideas and of those ideas we spent a lot of time programming building trying to sell things and none of it stuck until we did remote. And so it just sounds like, oh, you started remote after GitLab, and then everything went well. But it's not true. Like I was working my ass off for GitLab, and then I, at the same time, I built all sorts of businesses, some of which made money, but the majority of which not nothing at all. And then in, in the end, there was only one that's successful. It's the one that remained. It's not the one that we tried, and we we just failed our ways, our our way until we. We build remote and we're still doing the same approach today. We're just continuously wanting to do better, pushing ourselves, making a lot of mistakes. But like, if you want to become an entrepreneur, the best day to start is yesterday. The second best is today.
1: And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at thepodium.in. That's ad at thepodium.in.